What ho, folks! I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of an ongoing blog I've recently set up on Substack to develop my research on my own terms. Simply go to listentolillian.substack.com to subscribe for a bumper crop of reviews, essays and feature articles, with upcoming series including a deep dive into the output of Ealing Studios, dance in the films of Pound and Pressburger, and all things Carry On, James Bond and Derek Jarman. Each episode I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the silent era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters or its approach to queer subject matter. For this episode, I've invited American film critic Sarah Williams to join me for a chat. She's chosen two films for us to discuss in relation to each other, Laura Mulvey's feminist video essay Riddles of the Sphinx from 1977 and Ngozi Nwura's 1991 short film The Body Beautiful. Before I let Sarah introduce herself and the films, here's Mulvey's opening monologue to give you a sense of the subject. When we were planning the central section of this film, about a mother and child, we decided to use the voice of the Sphinx as an imaginary narrator. Because the Sphinx represents not the voice of truth, not an answering voice, but its opposite, a questioning voice, a voice asking a riddle. The Oedipus myth associates the voice of the Sphinx with motherhood as mystery and with resistance to patriarchy. In some ways, the Sphinx is the forgotten character in the story of Oedipus. Everybody knows that Oedipus killed his father and married his mother, but the part played by the Sphinx is often overlooked. Oedipus set off for Thebes, turning away from Corinth, where he'd been brought up by foster parents. The Sphinx sat perched on a cliff or pillar outside the city gates. She asked every man who went past a riddle. If they couldn't answer, she devoured them. Then she stopped Oedipus when he went past, and when he answered her correctly, she threw herself down from the pillar and killed herself. The myth of the Sphinx took on new life after Napoleon's campaigns in Egypt, when the great Sphinx at Giza was disclosed once again to Western eyes. The Egyptian Sphinx is male, but on its blank face, resonant with mystery and with death, the spectator could project the image of the Greek Sphinx. Once again, the Sphinx could enter popular mythology as in the image of male fears and male fantasies, the cannibalistic mother, part bestial, part angelic, indecipherable. Oedipus is different from other Greek heroes, in that he defeated the monster not by strength or by bravery, but simply by intelligence. In his answer to the riddle, Oedipus restored the generations to their proper order. But by doing so, he fell into a further trap. In his own life, he disordered them once more by marrying his own mother. It's almost as if Oedipus stands for the conscious mind and the Sphinx for the unconscious. The riddle confuses and disorders logical categories, and the monster is a hybrid of human, animal, and bird. But reading between the lines, the myth confirms women's sense of exclusion and suppression. The Sphinx is outside the city gates. She challenges the culture of the city with its order of kinship and its order of knowledge, a culture and a political system which assign women a subordinate place. 
to the patriarchy that the Sphinx as woman is a threat and a riddle. But women within patriarchy are faced with a never-ending series of threats and riddles. Dilemmas which are hard for women to solve because the culture within which they must think is not theirs. We live in a society ruled by the father, in which the place of the mother is suppressed. Motherhood, and how to live it, or not to live it, lies at the roots of the dilemma. And meanwhile, the Sphinx can only speak with a voice apart, a voice off. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Pretty good, yeah. Um, a little good. cold up here. I'm in northern Maine right now. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it's it's quite cold here, but I'm, I'm sure it's... <laughs> colder where you are. So did you want to introduce yourself, talk a bit about uh, your interest in film? Uh, my name is Sarah Williams. I'm a film critic and journalist who focuses a lot on LGBT film and French film specifically, and I'll t- I talk a lot about gender and feminist film. Um, most people know me for being a big Silenciama fan, having talked a lot about Portrait of a Lady on Fire at its, at its release, and I hope everyone knows I'm going to be exactly as obnoxious with her new film. Um, I'm an editor at Filmotomy um, along with other people and I also do a lot of freelance writing and, I'm, and I try to cover a lot of world cinema as much as I can. So Good. excited to talk about this today. Yeah, you know, you've picked a couple of really wonderful films, two films which hopefully perhaps some people won't have come across before or have seen. I mean, I hadn't seen The Body Beautiful until you suggested it. Um, I'd seen Riddles of the Sphinx because I had studied Laura Mulvey (laughs) Um, and it just sort of followed from that what's your relationship with these films um The Body Beautiful is one that I had actually found by Letterboxd scrolling through Sally Jane Black's favorite films as I find she has a lot of really interesting favorites I don't find anywhere she's one she's someone who I've gotten recommendations for like African cinema from and you also find some really really good obscure stuff like um, Michelle Citrin's Daughter Wright is another favorite of hers that I ended up really really loving so this is another film that I got from there was absolutely blown away by and then in terms of Laura Mulvey I so I've never gone to film school I've kind of self-studied anything I am a mariner I am very much not outside of film writing in the film industry so a lot of what I've done is self-study so I was reading a lot of her writing I actually despite having despite being very into the whole female gaze theory I actually think um, Death at 24 Times Per Second is her more interesting work than um, Visual Pleasures because Visual Pleasures I find kind of essentialist and that it almost has gotten updated and has broken off into more interesting things and so riddles of the sphinx was a film that i was trying to actually i was actually looking for some of her lectures and i had found that on youtube and, and watched it and i found that one really really interesting yeah especially yeah. with I, th- I think it's it's good to to start by mentioning um visual pleasure and narrative cinema which is the essay that sort of makes laura mulvey's name in 1975 and as you say it sort of proposes this notion that there is a male gaze in cinema up to that point, scopophilia on the perspe- from the perspective of male viewers, who particularly when they're looking at women. But as you say, it's the first thing that she writes. She's not an academic. It's playing on a lot of the psychoanalytical theories that were quite popular at the time, the developmental theories of Jacques Lacan, and also the ideas of Freud as well make its way into this. And she's mainly talking about vertigo, which actually in 
her more recent book after images which came out last year two years ago i think she actually says i still get to read it yeah no it's it's a good book she she looks that her essay on vertigo in particular is really interesting compared to what she writes about it in visual pleasure because it's she sees it more as like a critique or a sort of knowing self-critique on the part of hitchcock at what male voyeurism looks like and in the same way that something like peeping tom does that with michael powell as well both films which the first time i watched them i was like what is this gross disgusting man doing um, and then re-watching them i kind of could see that actually there's a there's a level of self-knowingness and and critique there but, but yeah visual pleasure is interesting in relation to this film because this film riddles of the sphinx comes two years later Laura Mulvey makes it with her husband, Peter Wallen. Uh, one quick thing. Uh, you mentioned some of the films that, like, about how she now thinks Vertigo is almost a, and Peeping Tom are almost commentaries on it. That instantly made me think of um, Rebecca Zlotowski's An Easy Girl. That film, oh. I think, is a perfect commentary <laughs> yes. on male gaze. Um, yeah. Like, Completely agree. It's yeah. wonderful the, film. How she shows the main characters... Um, her, her, she's using her sexual power over the men in the film, but they also have her having a lot of intelligent conversations about French literature and new French extremity horror. And I found that to be a really, really interesting continuation of Mulvey's theories and how it's almost how you can have a female author still perpetuate the male gaze, but as a commentary on and through her own experience with it. And I think that almost shows the limitations of the original before and further. Definitely. Um, yeah, I completely agree. And that's an easy girls on netflix in the uk so go and watch it because it is great and no one really seemed to talk about it when it came out but that's Please what, ha- that's, what ha- <laughs> that's what happens yeah she, she, she is great but yeah I, I wanted to just sort of read a quote from visual pleasure the the last paragraph because i think that contextually it sums up what Laura Mulvey is trying to do with Riddles of the Sphinx. So she says, the first blow against the monolithic accumulation of traditional film conventions already undertaken by radical filmmakers is to free the look of the camera into its materiality in time and space and the look of the audience into dialectics, passionate detachment. So what she's doing with Riddles of the Sphinx is kind of trying to remove all aspects of the traditional Hollywood film form and to create something which completely negates the gaze. Do you think that she's successful in that? So she's almost completely removing um, perspective because she's using her camera in 360 degrees. So you're not getting a single perspective. You're not getting her or her husband's choice of perspective when showing any of the 13 scenes in the film. You're getting an entire ring of the scene so that it's, um, it's giving you Either you can say it's giving you all of the perspectives or it's telling you to choose your own. And I think it's really interesting how she's essentially removing any individual gaze on it. Yeah, I completely agree. And the film that those shots reminds me of is um, Chantal Ackerman's Unchamba, which is similar yes, to 360 yes. degrees and it's um, Ackerman in bed eating an apple <laughs> and it's sort of going through time and it's this like quite repetitive, but also without as you say without a sort of specific perspective on the part of the audience of the camera moving around and and, you know 1975 is really a watershed moment for feminist films because we get Jean Dillman um, in 75 and India Song and we get visual pleasure so I think that that context is really key in understanding Riddles of the Sphinx because without it it could be quite an impenetrable film 
I would say. Um, it's not it's not an easy watch. Um, it's, yeah. You're having to do most of the work with the film to interpret mm-hmm. what it's saying. It's definitely a lot of it is in the in the voiceover. A lot of it is um, there's a, a the transcripts online somewhere. It, uh, it reads quite well as an essay, as like a more experimental piece of writing. And the film this actually reminded me of a bit was um, Semiotics of the Kitchen, with um, a lot of the scenes of domestic intimacy and stuff. Um, a lot of that reminded me of it. And also the other big thing that stands out to me is that with the imagery of the Sphinx. So she's using the Greek interpretation of that because there's essentially two big binary interpretations of the Sphinx. There's the Oedipal um, Greek Sphinx, which is very female and it's often, and then there's the whole death thing with it at the beginning of this film. And then in Egyptian mythos, there's the Sphinx is the giant statue. It's large. It makes a big physical presence and it's, it's quite stoic. Um, so it's really interesting to see how she essentially completely goes for the Greek thing, completely ignores that the more visibly noticeable um, Sphinx imagery is this Egyptian one. And the other thing that's got me thinking of is there's this French novel called Sphinx by Angareta that is, it's essentially a love story told by, um, it's a love story where the gender of both the protagonist and the love interest is completely removed from the writing. It's written to all gendered words in the book are used to refer to objects instead of the two characters. And it was, it's really interesting to see that the Sphinx is, has kind of become something that is so binarily gendered and that, that since the making of this film, this has become even more of like a cultural symbol for that and that she's entirely going for the um, female interpretation of it. And later she talks about it having the um, Sphinx that she mentions at the beginning, getting this motherhood imagery and growing. She talks about it growing breasts. <laughs> it's really funny to uh, see how she has gone so completely towards one, um, one interpretation of the same mythical creature to use it as a metaphor for patriarchy. Yeah, absolutely. And the the image we see at the start of the film of the Sphinx is in a book. And it's really fascinating, the three main images that we see. So the first one is Moira Shearer in Tales of Hoffman by Palin Pressburger, which is one of my personal favourite films. So seeing that image was like, oh, yay, uh, <laughs> Hoffman. <laughs> um, but that that the scene that that is is not the um, not the most famous one from Tales of Hoffman where Shira plays Olympia the mechanical doll. It's the um, enchanted dragonfly ballet at the beginning of the film, which is this really great ballet sequence where a sort of androgynous dragonfly has sex with a male dragonfly kills him and then flies off towards the sun in sort of a which is which is like that sort of imagery of of woman triumphing over man in this sort of genderless way which i find really fascinating the second image is glennis johns as miranda the mermaid which again is like the the symbol of the mermaid is similar to the sphinx and it's sort of the sort of mismatch of mythological creature or um of different species and then the last one is the Sphinx itself. Am I right in saying it's Greta Garbo's face, which is on the Sphinx? Yes. She's known for like films like Queen Christina, which exactly. is the which is a Swedish leader who um, is very, very much known for removing herself from constructs of gender from having female lovers. So Exactly. She's almost um, in 
Yeah, and also Garbo's like sort of reconstructed when she goes to Hollywood. Her face, that face, the face of Garbo is so different to what she looked like when she was living in Europe. Roland Bart writes this bizarre essay about how Garbo's face is like a symbol of cinema and of, of femininity. And he contrasts her face to Audrey Hepburn's, which is supposedly less beautiful because it's it moves more, um, which is a very bizarre piece of writing. But it, it's all, it's literally a few seconds of film where these images appear, but every image is being chosen on purpose. But again, it relies on someone who knows what they're looking at. Whereas, obviously, if, if it was one of her essays, she'd have to explain those points. Because this this is, like, quite an early example of the video essay as a as a genre, would you say? Yeah. Yeah, this is around the time where it's, like, her and Chantal Ackerman, very few other filmmakers that are making this kind of film. Um, this is pre-most of James Benning and most of the filmmakers that are known in this genre. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting that Mulvey is sort of in this herself in two scenes which are quite different like the first one feels almost documentarian in style she's sort of informing the viewer and looking at the camera at her desk and then the last one she's listening back to the audio of the film and writing things down and sort of clutching her head in a very relatable fashion while she's trying to I Come quite love when thesis. filmmakers insert themselves into their own <laughs> films like that. Um, yeah. She's also she's also a critic and an academic who's inserting herself into her own film as if she's criticizing it there too, as yeah. if she's applying her own viewpoint onto her own filmmaking. Yeah. What What do you make of the scene, the the last two sequences, which is where I, I think up to that point, I can really follow what she's trying to do. The 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 most of the the thirteen segments where. It's, as you say, the 360 degree shots. The last two sequences where it's a sort of coloured filter and people on trapezes and exercising. And then the last one, which is this puzzle with bits of what looks like mercury sort of moving towards the centre. What, what What's I... she doing there? Because I, 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 I admit to finding those a bit difficult. I find those to almost be a it's like a deconstruction of bali imagery because she has these words capital delay body that are repeated and um, a little bit before that there's the box and inscribed on the box of the words anatomy is no longer destiny it's almost so she's deconstructing the gendered anatomy and the gender constructs are going through it she's slowly pulling them apart slowly pulling them apart so it becomes more colored, vaguer shapes, and then the puzzle, the puzzle, it's almost it's got almost like direct imagery. It's slowly, slowly derailing itself as it goes at the end. Almost as if she's reached a point where she can't quite make more commentary on it. It almost starts to lose meaning as she continues going to it. That's what I'm taking it as. Yeah, I that's... don't know if I'm right in saying that, but that's also <laughs> one I haven't really found that much interpretation on. No, yeah. I mean, where people have talked about this film, it's mostly on the main shots in the center but the the ending is yeah i think you're right i I think that that's that is what she's trying to argue particularly that sort of uh not taking anatomy as destiny which is very much a french existentialist idea sort of de beauvoir's one is not born but rather becomes a woman i should say Um, yeah someone like her someone like monique Whitting, very very much like that exactly yeah and it's it's important to remember that this is what 13 years before gender trouble and Judith Butler sort of developing those yeah. ideas into what we now understand as sort of the distinctions between 
gender and, and biological sex. So it's, she's doing, you know, this is sort of between de Beauvoir and, and Butler. And yeah. Mulvey's almost yeah. starting to figure it out, but through the camera and without yeah. almost thinking about it yet. Yeah, def- definitely. And that's what, that's where this film really, I, th- I think, relates quite nicely to The Body Beautiful, you know, which, which is made in, in 1990 when Gender Trouble's written. And it, it's it, this idea of, of motherhood and the relationship between a mother and their child, which is explored in, in, in both of these films. Yeah, both are taking motherhood as almost an essential experience, or that's kind of what's tying them to, because they're using, because they're like, okay, so what's one like universal experience? Okay, pretty much every, everyone's born to having a mother, whether you keep that contact, and that's always an experience you can relate to having had that. And so they're using that as the universal experience, tying women to, to get together instead of being a mother, it's relating to having a mother, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's going from daughter to mother. Yeah, yeah. Did you want to do a sort of introduction to The Body Beautiful? Yes, and this is a film that I'm very much kind of so negotiating where she does a lot of, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, she does a lot of, she's done a lot of films with the Black British experience. Um, if you've seen Welcome to the Terror Dome, which would make a great um, double feature of Lizzie Borden's Born in Flames. Um, it's yes <laughs> it's like an afro it's like afrofuturism i believe it's in the criterion channel um collection on the movement um a lot of her that's actually kind of an outlier in her films now i think about it, because a lot of hers are very are a lot more documentarian on the women's experience um like body beautiful which is a, partially about her relationship with her mother welcome to the terror dome is basically built on the police killing some on the police killing a man in the community and a race um, a race war um, going on in this futuristic city. Um, the Body Beautiful is a lot calmer than that, but it still talks about race quite a bit. Um, it's contrasting the experience of a white mother who's gone through a mastectomy and her daughter, who is, ha- I believe, half Black, who is going through a modeling career. And it's how both of their bodies are viewed by others and by each other. So there's this pivotal scene in a sauna where the daughter and the mother are sitting there. And so everyone lowers their towels, as apparently is customary in there. I've never actually been in the sauna, though, so I was actually like, wait, that's a thing. Um, but they're in, so they're in there, the daughter lowers her towel comfortably, and her mother just sits there holding up her towel. And the daughter can't quite understand why her mother's ashamed, because the daughter's very used to her mother's body being the way it is, and that, her, and that that's, how, that's a fact of her life. And so there's a sequence where the mother lowers her towel and just everyone in the sauna stares at her and the daughter doesn't understand this. This is like the towel. She sees her mother's body as a beautiful thing, as something that she had come from, as something that she is close to. And she doesn't quite understand why any, why people around her are so like disturbed by seeing her mother's body as different from them. And so that goes along with um, sequences of the daughter's modeling career about, be, about sometimes being mean to be perceived as whiter or sometimes being tokenized as like this like ethnically diverse modeling career thing and so it's contrasting both of their experiences and there's also places in the film where it will show um, how her mother is desired by men how this feels like this big radical experience that the daughter can't quite understand for herself how this could be so rare because she is very much conforming to what society like believes for her body to be desirable yeah beautifully put thank you um yeah it's 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 a really rich and fascinating film and it's what 24 minutes long which is um you know it's it's quite amazing how much is packed in um and i i i do think 
that that scene in the sauna is particularly fascinating of how you know even within that sort of microcosm of british womanhood in 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 that room um you know there's a diversity of bodies and and body types and sizes and shapes of the women's breasts and yet there's the only judgment that we see is of the mother who of her mother who, who who's had the mistakes for me so yeah i i think that it really taps into body consciousness and the fear of judgment based on certain beauty standards that that is so prevalent in in society the, the only other sort of example i can think of, of of a similar sauna scene is in um a fantastic woman the uh, with um daniela vega when she goes yeah. into the sauna and she's trying to pass as a man in that scene in order to go in and, and retrieve something from a locker and it it shows how the body can sort of give something away about someone or it, it can speak louder than you know when you're outside mm-hmm. and you you can change your gender presentation or appearance you know when mm-hmm. when the mother's ha- in hospital um we hear a sort of information guide and it says you know you can this is how you can make your own fake breast so that no one would mm-hmm. ever notice under clothing yeah. that's not possible in this environment and it shows how mm-hmm. unless you are a sort of cisgender person who is anatomically you know and I the idea of what a man or or what a woman looks like it it can create these these problems for people um and I think I think that was really very powerfully portrayed I find it very fascinating how that's basically taking the cues that we pull to try to um form people into what our ideas of gender are and though it's not and though her mother isn't being perceived isn't directly being perceived as trans or anything. It's not like they're trying to clock her in the sauna. People are just inherently confused that she's not fitting their perfectly biologically sexed idea of what they're expecting to see. And that they're just, and that the scene in the hospital we're talking about, she doesn't feel the need to fake, but she's, she's existing as she is, but there's so much tied into um, feeling the need to be perceived at, without having someone look twice at you in it. But it was very interesting how they take two completely different ideas of um, people's perceptions about different things about both the mother and the daughter and are able to tie them in and are able to make it this interesting conversation between the two's experiences. Yeah, definitely. And also at the it's interesting because at the beginning, the when we hear that voiceover of the, the man talking about mastectomies, he says that you know these it's incredibly common now for for, mm-hmm. for as a result of, of of breast cancer for people to have their breasts removed and that he says that it's as as common as um tonsillectomy um or even mm-hmm. more so and yet it's something which causes these glances to be made mm-hmm. at her and there's also that incredibly powerful sequence the sort of dreamlike sequence where the mother who yeah. who, who, who is played by on his own mother yes. as herself and she's having sex with um a man who they've they've seen across a room talking about women's breasts and then he's sort of making love to her and then is hesitant and doesn't know what to do with the scarring that's left by her surgery what do you make of that sequence um I think it's almost as if it's a 
it's that's saying something about how this isn't discussed. He's saying he doesn't know what to make of it. It's not necessarily he doesn't know what to make of the direct scar, but he doesn't know how to converse with someone whose body's different than what he expects. He doesn't know how to interact where he's gone into a situation where, though he isn't, though it's not like something that's turning him off from the situation that he like just hasn't like been given the social cue for how to interact with and how to like talk. Like if he's supposed to ask, if he's supposed to comfort her, if she's embarrassed by it, he just hasn't, this just hasn't been something that's come up in common conversation for him and hasn't been like seen by him. So he just doesn't know what to do there. And it's almost like, and he's seeing it not as for not because it's something he doesn't know or something that's bothering him, but just something that he isn't, that isn't normalized to him yet. Yeah, definitely. And the way that the daughter, who is sort of a version of Ngozi Omura, then pushes down on him to force him into it, which is which is quite it's quite strange that she takes an almost active role in the idea of her mother's sex life, that she like wants that to exist and um the closeness that they feel that they're like lying in bed together and they're naked. I mean that's something that another example of an Ackerman film that does that is um, Les Rendezvous yeah. Dana, where the mother yes. and the daughter are sort of naked yeah. and lying together. And it's it's almost like a sort of return to the earliest stage of, of life and mm-hmm. that pure connection. Because this is, that's what the film talks about yeah. as well, when the daughter's looking in the mirror and she's saying about mm-hmm. how the body, the mother's yeah. body is sort of connected to the daughter's body. It's like how Riddles of the Sphinx talks about the Oedipus complex, which is very much from a male perspective, while Bob Beautiful and something like um, the Rendezvous that is very much, it's from the daughter thing, it's the seeing this as the closest representation of your body, what you will grow to, and then it's it's not making that a sexual thing necessarily. It's just taking that as a more natural as the natural mother daughter connection and the almost idolizing what it's like. She's almost she looks up to her mother's. That's what she sees as her as her growing older and almost as a, another version of herself. Yeah, definitely. And that that scene with the mirror is also interesting because that since this film is made, that becomes a trope in a lot of trans films of sort of people looking at their body yes. in a mirror from Boys Don't Cry right through to Lucas Dont's Girl, or is this very sort of lazy shorthand for what bodily yeah. dysphoria feels like and how it's sort yes, of... Yes, yes. How not, you see yourself like, is mismatched from... Yeah, sorry. Like <laughs> you're still seeing yourself existing in the mirror. It's just not... Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, a very but... heavy-handed visual clue I don't feel works as well as something like if you see if you've seen um, James Brown Brunt's We're All Going to the World's Fair. Mm-hmm. I feel like that does a much more interesting thing with like the um, camera documentation of dysphoria and how it's the watching and it's watching her and um, her lead characters watching herself grow on camera, watching herself sleep, and just it's more of a detachment than a I'm going to look to this mirror and I'm going to see things. I feel like that's doing it a lot, lot better. Yeah, and it comes it comes back to like this sort of obsession in feminist film theory in the seventies of people like um, Kaya Silverman and, and and Mulvey of like Lacan's idea of the mirror stage and how like it's the first yes. time we perceive ourselves that we sort of come out of ourselves and start critiquing how we look and that's so key to our development as human beings. And I suppose for the daughter in Body Beautiful 
she's forced to look at herself that way because she's chosen a modeling career, which is very much about the body and trying to conform to um, a very specific ideal of the bodily aesthetic, which then makes for an interesting contrast with, with how the mother sees herself. And she's not, and the daughter's not entirely seeing herself and conforming herself to her own idea and her own ideal, because her own ideal is almost shaped by her mother. She's conforming herself to what the photographers want, and that, that also changes throughout. It also cha- it changes through the shoot. It changes for who she's with in the shoot. And so hers is a constantly evolving thing compared to her mother, who sees herself as having this very final thing for the mastectomy and sees herself as in this more permanent stage of growing older while her daughter's in this very very fluid idea of how the world perceives her whether it's by her race or anything yeah do you think that there's um there's been anything since these films have made that sort of approached that subject See, I have a very complicated relationship with my mother, so I, I'm i weird with watching a lot of this stuff, but I think for some reason the first thing that's coming to mind here is the scene at the end of the second Mamma Mia movie, <laughs> of all things. I feel like that actually does it quite well. Is it's, So it's contrasting the mother when her daughter's born and the daughter having her daughter after her mother's already passed. And it's very much framed the same way. And they're like singing and having a conversation. I feel like that's one of the better ways I've seen this done lately. I feel like this, I feel like mother-daughter relationships have been taken very literally on camera lately. There's a lot less of, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, I feel like there's been a lot less um, films like Body Beautiful and uh, Rose and the Sphinx lately that fully handle this and will get into these familial relationships in this way. Um, a lot of the old guard of like very, very like nuanced feminist filmmakers aren't really working anymore. It's been a lot harder to find. I don't know. Yeah, I think that like the biological essentialism of women yes. as mothers is still rife now. I mean, as a woman who is not able to have children herself, it's it's quite difficult to watch films sometimes where that is yeah. almost equated to womanhood. Um, yeah. So because neither and of I'm these not, films yeah. quite quite equate that the daughters that the daughters are talking about their own relationship. It's always the daughters talking to their relation, conversing with their relationships to their mothers, not with them having children here. And I find that now it's always continuing and continuing to be generational after that. Yeah, I mean, the only film that I can really think of that I think effectively portrays what it feels like as a woman with very strong maternal instincts who can't sort of give birth mm-hmm. to a child is is Julie and Julia the Nora Ephron film because yes. Julia Child yeah. is is so the way that she gets emotional when she sees a child or mm-hmm. she her sister gets pregnant and she's unable to and the way yes. that her husband comforts her I find really yes. powerful but I, I I can't think of other films that really yeah it's, it's always represent like, that like we're bringing up Julie and Julia and Mamma Mia too exactly exactly uh, both great films oh great you know what they're great films (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's it's different to the sorts of films that um we're talking about here and the the audiences that 
will have seen Riddles of the Sphinx or would continue to see this film. Um, you know, it's it's available on BFI player, it's available on Blu-ray from the BFI and, and Body Beautiful, as you say, is, is available on Criterion Channel, as indeed are many of Anwar's films. But they're still, they're not, like, <laughs> they're not going to be watched by the same audiences that yes. are perhaps watching Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, or, or um, Julia and Julia. Which is yeah, why it's so important just... that they yeah. do include these aspects of narrative because it's important you know as as, again, as, as women to see these represented yeah. in like under two weeks we have Celine Siamo's new film which is very much tackling the concept of motherhood yes. and I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm right that the premise of this film is I have not seen it yet I'm just making it clear I have not had some secret early screening of this film <laughs> I'm pretty certain it's about it's using a similar thing to when Marnie was there where the daughter where it's the daughter um, imagining her mother at her own age and befriending her and getting to understand her. If this is what the oh. film is, this is going for exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. And so yeah, and I, I, I th- but I think actually, you know, because obviously the, yeah. this this podcast is is about British cinema, but I think you're right. I think yeah. that actually it's it's interesting that most of our references to this are sort of French and Belgian cinema because that that's where these ideas are just discussed so much more freely than I think British and American films are more are less comfortable perhaps in in saying you know women don't have to have children because you know it's it's and I think I think that that's true in Skiama's films as well I mean I'm thinking in particular of Tomboy and 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 how that represents represents childhood um and and again the essentialism of how how should a woman grow up how how should she identify how what relationship should she have with her mm-hmm. body and that 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 film's obviously fascinating because it's so That's, it leaves so much yeah. open at the end it's a film that i think fully understands my own conception of gender as one who very heavily struggle with it I, I don't think i've actually said this in my film stuff before but i had identified as a trans man for a few years i still toy with my own relationship with my body and whether i and whether my own personal identification with the term lesbian, the culture side of that goes beyond my own complicated relationship with my own body. And I feel like that's a film that full, that like actually understood that. And to continue with why I feel we're mainly pulling from French, from French examples, French is a language that heavily is missing a lot of words to conceptualize the concept of womanhood, that conceptualize the concept of gender and diversity around it. And that, that even, um, will go into the concept of sexuality. They're, they don't have words to describe things like sexual assault either. And so in France, their culture is so, even though they have a large um, proportion of female directors, they're so heavily male-dominated, so heavily in this very cons- socially conservative culture that there's a very, very heavily thriving, like younger left-wing gay female contingent in their film that's been going since the 70s with like Chantal Ackerman and stuff and now is going with filmmakers like Celine Siama, Rebecca, Satoshi, um, Catherine Corsini, Claire Bouget, Maria Michichelli, this whole group of filmmakers that are all that all work together. They all work on each other's scripts from time to time. So they actually have this whole separate culture, the way American and British film, which will have this more like neoliberal politics to it, where you can more enter the main canon of cinema, but it's often at the cost of very much fitting into this less commentary that they have. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And even though there are a lot of uh, female filmmakers in Britain, and I think, uh, you know, the, the, there are there are yeah. people like Andrea Arnold and Lynn Ramsey who are, you know, very famous and as celebrated as a lot of 
male filmmakers, they're not dealing with these subjects in the same no. way. Yeah, I I think that if the, the, these two films that we're mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, they're de- they're dealing with something which even now a lot of filmmakers are hesitant yes, to approach. Yes. Because mm. when I was looking into um, other films to possibly do on the, to possibly approach to you for this, I was looking at Derek Sherman and Terrence Davies, two gay male filmmakers that I think have had very, very good commentary because they're the ones that are doing this. They're the ones that are either still working or are the more prominent in British film to talk about like gender and sexuality, as opposed to um, films like these, which are often very hard to find. I know you guys have it on BFI player. Um, in the U.S., I, we have um, very, very recently some of these coming out to Criterion Channel and then, like, YouTube rips in, like, 380p. So. Yeah. But even, like, J- Derek Jarman's films, for example, were pretty much unwatchable yeah. until the yep. BFI, like, restored them all and released them on Blu-ray mm-hmm. a few years ago. Um, yeah. It was so hard to find his films. It's interesting. I still can't find yeah. the entirety of um, the Terrence Davies Children trilogy. I can find like the first one or two at times. I can't oh, find yeah. the third part of that yet. I think the BFI again have done a box set that includes includes it's that. The BFI. Um, yeah, I'm but yeah, no. Da- Davies is partic- <laughs> I think Davies is particularly interesting in talking about childhood because Jarman sort of mostly steers away from childhood there's a there's a bit in in Wittgenstein where he sort of looks at sexual awakenings for homosexual children whereas Davis is very much focused on the child's perspective and the environment that sort of shapes who they become I mean long day closes in particular yes uh, and even um, something like sunset song um, it's still like a younger girl yeah yeah and that that's that's what I was going to ask you next is that again that's like male essentialism and ideas of masculinity and what and how cultural ideas impact the way that men see their futures but again there aren't that many films which deal with that for women and young girls yes um the daughter she's in her 20s but it's very much seeing her from a child from the child like the perspective of being a child compared to her mother and i feel like that's very interesting because it's um we're talking about childhood from someone who's grown up because we're using them at for their relationship as someone's child i feel like that's a very interesting way to to depict relationships and it's something i do find really interesting i want to see more yeah definitely I like, opened Letterbox and turned on my like UK John, um, country filter like to look for films to yeah. talk about. The other two things I was noticing, or the other two film, there were two films I was looking at. The Hours and Orlando are both on here. And when I was like making lists of everything that seemed kind of relevant to this, you guys do a lot of Virginia Woolf adaptations that are very good at. You guys do good ones. That, yeah, well, Woolf Wolf in in ones. in literature is probably yeah, yeah pretty unique at, at approaching. Yeah those subjects and 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 you know Orlando is like I probably shouldn't say too much about Orlando because I'm doing um an episode on Orlando with someone had a feeling um <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> it, it, was inev- it was inevitable that that would be that would be brought up but um yeah. it's it yeah it's it's portrayal of gender is so unique there aren't other films that do it in quite the same way where it's literally just like snap and it's changed yeah whereas the hours i absolutely love again that's about generations of women and the relationship between women in the past and women in the present and how how we're sort of connected to our foremothers in in quite yes. a unique way that doesn't actually need, you know i think in that film in particular it's it's never made explicit necessarily what what's connecting 
the three women that the film's about. I mean, obviously it's it's more obvious between the sort of modern Mrs. Dalloway character, yes. Virginia herself, but then Julianne Moore's housewife sort of in the middle is quite... Um, She's almost ignored. like Exactly. Yes. And yet she goes through a similar journey to those other two women. Yeah, this one, you, this one most people here would talk about versus some other, very much talking about literary adaptations. Like if you ask them like about Bershwin, they're probably going to bring up like a Pride and Prejudice adaptation or something like Atonement, something very, very literary. So Virginia Woolf's kind of the one big, like very, very literally based um, author that's going to be, ha- going to have a lot of film adaptations that actually go more into nuance about gender and stuff because it's coming from a queer. Um, yeah. And then the other thing I'm thinking of, um, I have no idea why this is something that came into my mind immediately when you would ask me about this podcast. Was, so to bring quick background, uh, my father is British and he had come over here in like the mid thirties, right before I was born. So I was very, very much raised with like British children's books. The one thing I'm wondering is why hasn't there been a good famous five movie yet? Oh yeah. <laughs> I very I mean... much grew up on those books. <laughs> I want yeah, as as a Secret Seven girl, I um I I, I also have this frustration with the lack of Enid Blyton adaptations. Yes, um, and the answer is I don't know because it it seems so ripe for for adaptation. This, this there was is this, something the, that I think yeah. could work very well now too. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because like the the period when when Mulvey was writing and making films in the seventies was was a, was perhaps the time when a lot of British children's classics were being ad- yes. adapted things like the Railway Children, Swallows and Amazons, those sorts of yes, those sorts Swallows of... and Amazons. Oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Famous Five and Secret Seven. And, Famous uh, Five is one that had a um, that had a it had a one of the lead characters as a kid who's quite similar to the lead in Sling Thomas Tomboy, who's a yeah. who's presented as a young girl who goes by a boy's name and is very very tomboyish to the point where. You, some people will nowadays will interpret the character as trans, some don't. But it's like this could be like it's something that would work very, very well in like children's literature now. And I don't know if it's because of the rise in transphobia in media, but this isn't the, I don't understand why of all like children's media properties, this isn't something that's now like Well, maybe 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 we should um collaborate on that. Yeah. <laughs> get, get get it made. Um but yeah, I think you're right that those the female characters in particular in those stories are are fascinating because unlike a lot of actually i i think a lot of female characters in sort of those sorts of books like c.s lewis chronicles of narnia yes. chronicles of narnia they are you know they're not they're not wimps <laughs> they're yeah. strong adventurous young women um who in like those compared yeah. to a lot of like the like um, like the like kids books from like that I was reading at those age I found those characters to be a lot more developed and I still don't understand why I was finding better ones there but yeah no I I, I agree but Sorry yeah for the British children's literature tangent. no no it's it's good it's all it's all relevant um <laughs> and and yeah it's 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 important to question why some things you know have been adapted because people love a film yeah, based on a book i think but... it's german or swedish or something there is like a like direct-to-video like series that was made in like some like, mm. other language that yeah and there, there is there was a quality. television film with helena bonham carter playing mm-hmm. enid blyton which yes. shows like the f- weird fraught relationship she had with her own children in relation yes. to other children who would listen to her stories so yeah again that's this interesting dynamic between mother and 
children that that I suppose <laughs> these films touch upon in quite a different way. The only other thing I wanted to say about Riddles of the Sphinx is there's, uh, from a sort of British history perspective, there's that really wonderful shot in the shopping centre where they're like yes. all of the sort of shops which still exist today, but they look so mm-hmm so different it's and it's like all women in the shopping center yeah. like, this is where women go <laughs> this is what they do um they go to the shops and they get the groceries the and... other bit i loved was the um thing this where it's um it's not directly saying it's siren mythology but on the ship where yeah where the, it's going into like oh we're on the ship there's like we're tying to the mast and then it goes into this nightmare um and it's a nightmare very much about like domesticity and going back in time like it's like sheep shearing and stuff and it's going very back to like a nightmare of uh, more domestic of like domestic life and like the harder parts like a relationship to fatherhood and I found that bit really really cool um, that's probably one of my favorite sections of it yeah yeah no it's it's a really it's a very good film I find it a hard one to recommend. It's hard to watch. I, yeah. yeah. I'm because, not sure who to tell to watch th- it. Exactly. There are moments in it where I'm thinking, oh my God, this is so masterful and brilliant. And, and, then, and, then, <laughs> and there's other parts where I'm just like, but what is she my doing? Brain hurts. <laughs> my brain hurts. Yeah. Uh, it's like uh, to come back to visual pleasure and why the quote that I, as I mentioned to, at the start was how far can you go in stripping back the form yes. of cinema? Mm-hmm. And I think that there are times where she does go too far and there are times where it's just enough and the balance is right. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, that's the point of experimental cinema. You know, yes. it doesn't have, it doesn't have to, not, not everything is going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different, there are different parts that are going to, to resonate with someone and there are parts that, that aren't. I just think that also if we're thinking about the films that are coming out of mm-hmm. this period, Ackerman and Varda are just doing (laughs) a lot and then there's the whole New York scene with like Joyce Chopra and that whole group too like there's like three different like there's a French and American British thing and then um, yeah I believe Sarah Maldor was working at the same time too like all over the world there's like a bunch of different like Mm -hmm. film movements going on all at the same time it was really interesting period yeah, but I, I, I think that those other filmmakers are perhaps doing it maybe more effectively in terms of watchability and relatability. I think yes. that surrendering narrative entirely can result in that that sense of detachment that a film like Riddles of the Sphinx can give by comparison to Body Beautiful, which you know, yes. has has quite a clear narrative, but it has mm-hmm. those those experimental aspects to it. And, you know, it's 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 not it's it's clearly doing something political mm-hmm. or or yeah. it has it has a thesis that it wants to get across. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is why I would actually recommend that film yes, yes. significantly more because oh. it, it it does have that power to yeah. it. I'm quite into experimental film and I'm noticing a lot of the films that I would recommend more do keep their narrative something like um Sophie Rambari's still processing um Susan Pitt's Joy Street Chantal Ackerman's News from Home or Jennifer Reeves's Chronic those all have a direct narrative through them no matter how like experimental the filmmaking techniques or how much they're removing themselves the filmmakers are removing themselves from it it still has a narrative it still has a narrative line instead of making you need to go to do outside reading to figure out what the symbols that are showing on screen are so it almost so real to the it's something that almost involve, 
like requires a literacy in film to watch as you mentioned like tales of hoffman recognizing like greta garbo and all of this imagery it almost rec it almost requires you to have done your film research to, to get anything out of it um and i feel like that's true of a lot of mulvey actually um something like iris spray's um the female gaze her book um that came out last year um, that talks about a lot of different films like Ida Lupino and um, a film called Simone Barber's Virtue. Like it talks about a lot of different like obscure older films, but it gives everything context the way Mulvey's um, writing often didn't. So it's a lot easier to understand her um, theory of the female gaze. Of course, if you read French because the book still hasn't been translated, it's a lot easier to understand her theory of female gaze than it is to go back and read Mulvey's book on male gaze and relate on that and you can almost get more about the male gaze by reading about this counterpoint to it because I feel it's a lot more accessible in the writing yeah definitely and and I think that Mulvey's writing has changed a lot and yes. developed a certain maturity over time I mean because as, as I said when she wrote Visual Pleasure she she wasn't an academic in a, at all I mean film studies itself was so, still very young at that, at that point whereas now you know she works at Birkbeck University in, in London yeah. and she she lectures on film and mm -hmm. After Images is a really nice collection of some mm -hmm. of her best writing one of the films that she talks about in that book is um for one more hour with you by alina Maranzi, which yes. i absolutely adore and that again is, is um it's a film entirely made up of home video footage um about her mother who committed suicide mm -hmm. when she was very young so she's like trying to find her relationship with her mother through that mm -hmm. film and again that's what you mentioned um sophie Rumvari still processing and, yes. and again it's that use of that use of um, footage to find a connection mm -hmm. and re-establish a relationship with someone through film which I suppose is what Body Beautiful does mm -hmm. but in a different yes. way it's restaging those events mm -hmm. rather than actually using the authentic film material. Still Processing is a film that is entirely the live process of grief she's filming all of it she's filming the first time looking at these things I feel like that that in the future can't is going to turn into something very radical of instead of an essay film being looking back it's an essay film being looking live on camera and going and showing your full process instead of trying to recreate it afterwards yeah absolutely that that was great thank you so much thank you if you've got an idea for an article or a podcast you can contact me via twitter my handle is at lil croft with three hours in lil which is where i'll be posting about new writing and episodes do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodle pip!